So hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome a dear friend and my longtime patient, the wonderful Kathleen Buell, formerly Biden. Throughout her life and career, Kathleen has been a tireless and dedicated advocate for women. Whether she's helping provide legal support for domestic abuse victims or fostering community among women in D.C., her advocacy and nonprofit work has given so many women critical support for sharing their stories and voices. And now we're going to turn to Kathleen herself in her just published book, If We Break, A Memoir of Marriage, Addiction and Healing. Kathleen opens up about her marriage and very public divorce from Hunter Biden and addiction's devastating impact on their marriage, and how she found resilience and healing through it all. Kathleen, thank you so much for lending your voice to these issues historically and today, and for helping women beyond, I think, your even awareness. We so often neglect these issues, and you have brought advocacy and self-awareness and growth into the spotlight. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the show today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. I'm excited. Okay, so... You have always been a champion for women, particularly women who haven't had a voice. And here you are now giving yourself a voice, I think, for, for your own health and well-being to be able to talk about the struggles you've been through. Um, and I think whether you know it or not, this book is going to help other people find the voice and find the strength to make changes they may need to make. One of the things that you and I have talked about over the years as my patient and as your doctor is the effect that relationships in our lives can have on our health, whether the relationships are healthy, unhealthy, or somewhere in the middle. And your sort of acknowledgement over time of the struggle in your relationship with your ex-husband has been really brave and extraordinary. And I'd love to just hand the mic over to you just now and talk (laughs) to me about what the struggle was like And how you ended up coming to terms with the fact that it wasn't good for you mentally and physically. I'm excited to be here. So fun. I will say you were a part of my journey of healing in many ways, physical and emotional. Your attention to my emotional health, mental health, as well as my physical health speaks to your gift that I hope you're going to reach through this podcast. And I don't think many doctors do that. I think it is mostly focused on physical health. And you have always, always, when we go back into your office, have asked me how I'm doing, how I'm feeling, relationships, sleeping, all of that. And I write in the book about how I kept so much to myself, Mm. not wanting to share that things were broken or that we were struggling and sitting in your office, knowing that I could trust you was really cathartic. It was one of the few places that I really could dump and say things are not okay. Mm. But I think for me, even though I was sharing with you, there was a lot I wasn't sharing with anyone else. And that's a heavy lift. And so I started 
writing after Bo died as a way to try to make sense of what was happening because it didn't make sense to me. My husband was struggling with addiction. My daughters were heartbroken over the loss of their uncle. I was heartbroken over the loss of my brother-in-law. And Hunter was struggling. And whether or not I was openly telling the girls that, there's no way that they weren't feeling the impact. And so I wrote. I wrote to try to make sense of it. And that was really cathartic for me. But I will say, you know, over the course of five years, the writing has completely evolved. You know, in the beginning, I think people love an addict, live with an addict, will recognize what I went through, which is, you know, you find yourself in a defensive crouch of trying to say, well, I'm trying to help you. And, you know, this is what you need. And you get sucked into behavior that isn't healthy. And so while Hunter was struggling with his addiction, I had my own struggle, you know, of how to handle it. And so in the beginning, the writing was very much an explanation of why I was doing the things I was Mm, doing. That's so interesting. Because I think, as you and I have talked about, and as I talk about with my patients who are living with a partner who is struggling with addiction, whether it's to alcohol or drugs or other substances or behaviors, I think the instinct when you love someone is to try to explain it away in your mind, right? Because at the end of the day, right, addiction isn't about someone's particular fondness for that substance, right? It's about that person self-medicating pain. And I think we all experience pain. And I think when you love someone, want to help understand their pain and help them understand the reasoning behind the addiction. But at the end of the day, I think there's this intrinsic tension to understate the problem where you love someone so much and you simply cannot make them change. I think sometimes change is possible, but tell me about that sort of paradox, if you will, between loving someone so hard, the father of your children, the man you married, and then realizing that this was destructive, not only to him, but for you as a person. I think a lot of people who are going through this you know, this struggle to try to help somebody. I was told over and over again by therapists and addiction specialists, can't make him quit. Mm. You can't force him to stop. He has to make that decision on his own. And I just couldn't hear it because you do, you want to help the people that you love. And, you know, what I wasn't doing was looking inward. You know, what I wasn't doing was understanding what I was afraid of and, um, you know, stopping to really just sit with decisions and choices I was making based on how I was feeling. And that took a long time. That, what you just said, is crucial. It's that eyes wide open moment, set of moments, stretch of your life where you decided consciously or unconsciously that you had to recognize the unpleasant realities of someone with addiction and turn to yourself and protect yourself mentally and physically. I think that's what so many women don't have the opportunity to do or aren't willing to do or don't have the support or structure to be able to do. Because again, like marriages and these relationships are sacred. He's the father of your children. And so I think our natural instinct, especially as women, is to try to make it okay, fix it, explain it, sort of protect others when actually that comes at a cost and we can sort of subjugate our own needs. And then when you realized that you were suffering separately and importantly, 
I mean, that to me is where the growth started, if you if you will. Right. I mean, I joke that I had an emotional growth spurt in my forties. Mm. You did, and you know, I think it. A lot of it came once I stepped away from what became my own addiction. You know, I I, I wrote about in the book that you know there came a point, especially after my brother in law died, and um, we were going through an especially difficult time. I had developed my own addiction in trying to control, save, force my husband to do something that he wasn't ready to do. And I could not see clearly. I had gone down a rabbit hole. And a lot of this is just time, right? I mean, a lot of it is, it's hard to tell someone when they are in trauma that you should start taking care of yourself. And this, you know, this, this isn't healthy for you. It's sort of like, you know, I watch women now going through divorce and I recognize the crazy. It's like, oh, yeah, it's okay. You let yourself get your crazy on, you know, for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But in time, when I stepped away and was able to, and a lot of it through writing, was able to reflect on what it was doing to me and acknowledge how really unhealthy it was, was I able to move past it and grow. How did you feel physically that the the trauma you were living through affected you? I mean, f- physically, what were the symptoms? I mean, you and I have talked about this, but just for people who to understand what it feels like to be living through a trauma. Right. I mean, I thought I was losing my mind. And, you know, and this is also something I've talked to my girlfriends about. I started menopause, which you know, you were there with me. Yes. You were surprised. I was like 41, I know. 42. I was like, that can't be menopause. No, you're like, you're wrong. I said, um... I only miss a period when I'm pregnant. And that, <laughs> I was like, let's those you're not tubes pregnant. have been tied. Yes. So it was interesting. I, this happens to women, right? During menopause is when our kids graduate, you know, our parents start having health issues, our marriage, you know, we're at a point in our marriage. So I couldn't pinpoint, you know, I had anxiety, I had problems sleeping, I was forgetful. I mean, I remember finding my keys in the fridge. I was like, what is wrong with me? I lost my driver's license, my credit card, my car. I mean, it was just, I really felt like I was losing my mind. And so that's what trauma looks like, I think. It is. It's measurable in the sense that people have this hypervigilance physically, like the you know, the palm sweating, the heart racing, the, but there's the hypervigilance, as you just described, is also emotional. It's, it's like, your rational brain gets overtaken by the desire to just protect, 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 protect. And then we get flooded with stress hormones and we are putting our keys in the fridge. That must have been kind of hilarious or tragic at the same time to find that. I I can't tell you how many times I pulled out of my driveway and went the wrong way. It was like, you know, and I would, I would stop, take deep breaths in the car to try to say like, okay, Kathleen, yeah, slow down. But, you know, there were a couple of things that saved me during that period. It was awful. It was awful. It was, it was painful, but I had my girlfriends, my family and I, you know, I love my family and I, I won the lottery with my family, with my daughters, my parents, cousins, family, all of them. But my girlfriends, it's a, it's a different relationship. And they, they held me up and pushed me forward. They let me cry and complain and take up all the airspace on our walks and our runs. And, 
you know, I've learned to value those friendships in a way I didn't when I was younger. You know, you and I were talking just before we started recording about Instagram. You know, it's, it's a wonderful platform, right? But how people and women, I think, will post the sort of highlight reels of their life when... Right. And if you know some of these people, you'll realize, like, gosh, that is so it's so funny because it's not actually real life. Like, And it's irritating. Well, I don't want to see it. Right. I want to see you eating a hot dog. I know. Or, like, you know, right. getting a fender bender and, and yeah. like, with, like, ketchup on your face and toilet right. paper coming out. I want to see the background. <laughs> That's a it. A dirty house. I want to see. Like the real thing. Crap on the table. I guess my point mm. is the glue in relationships with other women, at least it is true for me, and I believe it is true for you, is that shared vulnerability and that ability to, to be honest. And one of the themes of your book has been about honesty, honesty with yourself. Right. And then, I mean, that is like, that is, I mean, if you don't have honesty with yourself, then, then it's really hard to be healthy kind of from the inside out. Right. And it makes you feel bad. Yeah. All those people who are sort of hiding the messiness and, you know, trying to put forward this perfect life, you know, I mean, to me, that's just, I wonder if they feel good about themselves. You know, it's that, that need to sort of show that everything's okay. But, you know, I, I, as I write in the book, there was a long period where I was doing that, where I was saying, everything's great. We're great. I love my husband. I love my kids, all of which is true, of course. But, you know, I, I did not want to show the cracks. I thought that that, I don't know if it was reflects badly on me or that wasn't the image I wanted to put forward. Well, it also is a coping mechanism, right, to try to control the things that you think you can control. Right. Right, like what you put out on social media, the way you talk to yourself and others about how things are going well, as a, as a sort of shield against pain. And so I have the same question when someone is presenting themselves as perfect or I've got this or, you know, I remember in the mom's group when my son was an infant telling me that her son at six weeks old was sleeping through the night and was just a brilliant child. And she could just tell from, I thought, this poor woman, something's really, <laughs> right. like something's really painful and she's trying to kind of hide it. And I don't know what it is, but really annoying that her kids is sleeping through the night at six weeks. So I guess the point is that I think when we're honest with ourselves, as you have been so bravely and publicly, is when we can really start to kind of drill down into the roots of our pain and joy at the same time. It's interesting to me that you talk about writing, because before you wrote this book, you were already writing. Right. I've always been a writer. I've always been a journaler. I've always been someone who just intuitively finds that putting things on the page can make them less scary and less and have less power over your brain because I perhaps like you have like a really noisy brain. And then it also can help you kind of sort and process and think clearly about complex issues. It's actually why I've been writing this damn newsletter for two and a half years. It helps <laughs> me sort right. and process and then crystallize my thinking so and it's also one of the things I recommend to patients who are going through a hard time like I recommend therapy and mindfulness techniques and you know Prozac as needed and (laughs) all the different tools in the toolkit but one of them is writing Um, so could you talk to me about what the process of writing this book did for you and what like I wonder if you learned more about yourself just in writing the book itself I did I mean David Sedaris uh, who I love 
so funny. He said something like, I don't know how people make sense of the world without writing. Like, I agree. people who don't write make sense? For me, like I said, when I first started writing, it was really this litany of everything I was doing right. You know, Hunter and I just were talking on two different levels, and it took me a while. The writing that you'll see in the book is... June 14th, everybody launches. June 14th is very different than how it started. And it was hard. It was painful. And I had this wonderful writing teacher that I worked with in the beginning, and I would write stories, and I'd send them to her, and I'd think, like, this is great. This is so funny. You know, and I'd write yeah, it like, down. I'm so hilarious. I, you know, this is, ooh, this is good. This story has so many parts to it. And she'd send it back, and in the side, she'd write, what were you thinking when you got in the car to go stalk your husband? I was like, well, why? What's the... You know, I mean, she really, it was just everything I wrote, she would push me to say, you know, well, have you thought about why you did that? And one of the hardest things for me to realize was my role in my marriage. You know, I, I wanted to write, like, I worked so hard and cooking and cleaning and taking care of the kids and my husband and my commitment. And I had to acknowledge that I played no role in our finances. And that's that was really hard to put on paper, mm. to really accept that I liked the things that money brought. And I didn't want to think about the fact that we should be saving or that we shouldn't be spending the way we were. I ignored it. And that's embarrassing. Yeah, I think it's really great you can acknowledge that. In any marriage, you have to delegate, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it's very common for women not to understand the finances like the guy does. And if people have troubles in their marriage, it's typically about three things. One, sex. Two, parenting. And three, money. And so it's important for women to have an understanding of their financial situation. And I, I like that you're able to acknowledge that that was a problem. I mean, as a feminist, as an advocate for women, you realized you wanted to have more control and understanding. Oh, I didn't though. Yeah, now I know. <laughs> I mean, it's so embarrassing to say, and, I, and this is the message I hope my three daughters get. You know, I, I've been drilling it into them. And uh, I think, you know, so far I've got two girls supporting themselves. So one hopefully on her way. She's got one more year of college. But this is a really important message that I hope people get from the book. It doesn't matter if you're not contributing financially to the household. Every woman should understand her finances, whether or not she's paying the bills, you know, whether or not she's, you know, bringing income in, it doesn't matter. It is our responsibility. And, that, and so it was really hard for me to acknowledge that I put all of that responsibility on Hunter and that wasn't fair to him and it wasn't good for me. My income is far less than it was when I was married but I have total control over it. And it has given me more comfort, security than I've ever felt in my whole life. Mm. It's so important, sort of realizing what you can control and what you can't. And then, sort of, again, knowing the difference. Like my favorite thing is the serenity prayer, as I've talked about incessantly. And having control of your finances is really having control of your life and expectations regardless of where you are financially, you know, whatever your means are. But I think that's such a good lesson for women. 
I'm just interested in this moment where you were stalking your ex-husband. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that. And what was that about? And what were you expecting um, to get? I mean, this is the crazy. This is where I really talk about unhealthy. I didn't know where he was or what he was doing. And for 22 years out of my marriage, you know, and so many awful things have been written about my ex-husband. Terrible things. Terrible things. And I I hope people read in my book the loving, caring man he was. I loved him. He was a great husband to me and a great father to my daughters and a great member of my family as much as his own. And so this was my life partner. I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with him. And then he he left and it didn't make sense to me. This is when I wasn't hearing anything anybody had to tell me. And so he was living in an apartment 15, 20 minutes away. And I found out the address and I would put the kids to bed, say goodnight to the kids, get in my car, drive, park across the street and stare up at his apartment. Ugh. <laughs> so yeah, I did that. I did that. I don't blame you whatsoever. Did you ever find out anything of note? No, did it I ever that- reap rewards? No, no. Nothing. Nothing did. I mean, again, I was like trying to make sense of what was happening. You're trying to control the uncontrollable and sort of get some piece of information that would make you say, aha, I get it. It all makes sense, which 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 you knew intellectually and you now know didn't make sense. But it felt like just being there, you could somehow understand it. I broke into the apartment building, went up to his apartment, put my ear against the door, called him. Heard him on both sides of the door, ran down the stairwell, and got locked in his parking garage. Oh, Lord have mercy. I mean, I was I mean, like... You were just... you were just In my pajamas, by the way. Oh, my God. In my pajamas and my slippers, sitting in the parking garage. That's like, what trauma what will do. It, it'll make you do nutty things in your pajamas right. in the dark and of I night. I was like... I was a relatively... And I think you can vouch for me. I was a relatively sane person. Oh, but all, the whole time you've been sane, I mean, <laughs> let's just acknowledge that we're all insane in some ways. But you, yes, you're incredibly sane, incredibly grounded. It's just that even the most sane, grounded person flips their lid when they're faced with the enormity right. of trauma that you were dealing with. Someone, uh, someone once said to me, when crazy and sane meet, crazy will always pull sane down. Sane can't pull crazy up. And I was dealing with someone struggling with addiction, just in a, in a terrible place, right? I mean, you know, don't smoke crack, kids. It doesn't make you the best version of yourself. So I'm dealing with someone who doesn't have full, you know, control over his actions, his words. And I'm trying to reason with him, you know, someone who's, you know, in a terrible place. And so I got pulled down. So we were both crazy, you know, neither one of us was making any sense. It makes sense how little sense it makes. It makes sense behaviorally. It also makes sense biologically. When when we are when our brains and bodies are faced with that amount of trauma and stress, I mean, our emotional brains just sort of take over that frontal lobe, that rational problem-solving part of our brains. And I love what you just said, that when crazy and sane meet... Crazy is always going to pull sane down. Sane can't do it. Sane can't pull crazy up. Let's take a quick break. 
Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. Welcome back. Let's get on with the conversation. You could have written the typical sort of tell-all in this book. You could have written like the burn down the house tell-all about the Bidens, right? But you didn't. You've written a really generous, honest, and beautiful kind of accounting of your story. And to me, that it sort of says everything you need to know about you as I've known you, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're not, you're not here on this planet to blame or shame, but rather to have empathy and self-awareness. And if only more people would do that in this world, we'd be better off, right? Because it's very tempting, I think, when we're going through a hard time or hard times to be the victim, to blame others, to spray bullets metaphorically at other people. And you're, you're not doing that in this book. You are, you're really turning inward and forgiving. And the forgiveness part, I wonder how it makes you feel sort of emotionally and in general to be in this place of forgiveness. I wanted to feel better. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was, I was carrying so much an anger. For a long time, I, I didn't want to acknowledge that anger. You know, it was, I'm not mad. I'm fine. I'm good. And I think that's what everybody wants. And, and, you know, the spraying of bullets is make you feel better. It doesn't. There's a period, like I said, you know, I have girlfriends who are going through divorce, and I'm, I'm remembering what that felt like, that pain and anger. It's a difficult time for everybody. But I wanted to feel better. I didn't want that anger. I didn't want to feel bad. I wanted to let go of it. And... I couldn't just say, oh, I forgive you. I'm good. You know, I mean, it, I, I did do that. I did say that over and over again. I'd say, I'm not mad. I've, I've forgiven everybody. But it took, it took time. Time doesn't heal all wounds, but sometimes you do just have to wade through it to get to the other side. But I had to understand what I was forgiving before I could truly feel that forgiveness it makes sense. I mean, anger is a normal emotion. It's natural. It's it's also an action-oriented emotion, right? I mean, anger makes you feel powerful. It roots our emotions in a let's do something about this, right? And and that, but it also externalizes a lot of the suffering that we have. And so, again, I mean, I think we see in the world we live in right now so much anger, so much vitriol so much blaming and shaming and and granted there's blame to go around right like no one is perfect people are doing bad things everywhere you look but at the end of the day what's meaningful to me about your story and about your telling of it is that you recognized the importance of looking at the anger kind of naming it and then finding a way to transition the anger into a more healthy emotion of here's what I can do that I can control. Here's what I can't control acceptance 
and then ultimately forgiveness. Now, just like the stages of grief aren't on a ladder, like it's not like you graduate from stage one and then you go to stage two, like you go from middle school to high school. I'm sure there's moments of anger you still have. Like, it's not like once one has forgiven somebody, then right. it's done and tied up in a <laughs> right. bow and all of a right. sudden, woohoo, I'm for- we're forgiven and everything's done. And I mean, I think just like grief, and you could argue that this has been a grieving process, losing a relationship, losing a part of your life and, and a part of your person. I don't think it's that quaint to expect that we can go from anger to forgiveness and then it's all, you publish right. a book and then woo rainbows, rainbows and then wow. you're on in People Magazine and woo right. that was cool and now you move on. No, I mean, I think it's it's not that tidy. It's not that quaint. And so I wonder moving forward how you're going to kind of take what you've learned and put it into your next chapter, if you will. Right. There is a long time where I kept thinking, oh, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Once I get this divorce finalized, I'll be finished. You know, there were just so many periods where I was like, once I get through this, it'll be over. But, you know, you come out of the tunnel and there's another tunnel. And so sitting with that, too, is important. It's like, oh, I've forgiven Everybody and now I never have to think about it. Ever right, again. right, right. No, of course there's triggers. As if, of course. You know, there's triggers and there's um, you know moments where I don't feel you know I get pulled back in. But the biggest piece for me for the next chapter, what I've learned, is really being honest with myself. That is the game changer. Is to just acknowledge it. To just say you know I. And, I'm angry. I'm angry. That's irritating. I'm going to sit with that for a minute. Yeah. And just, you know, work through it. Talk about it. Let some time pass. Go for a walk. But, you know, for a long time, I wouldn't acknowledge I was angry. I'm not angry. I'm worried. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm scared for you. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, no, <laughs> I was angry. Yes. I was angry. And I didn't want to admit it because to me... I looked at anger as not being kind and I wanted to be a kind person and a good person and a generous person. And, you know, I had to, again, in writing the book, think, oh, you were angry. (laughs) You were angry. And that's okay. I think so many women, as you just described, don't want to acknowledge their anger. And it's one of the common themes I see people who I send, like my patients who I recommend therapy to or in addition to other modalities to manage stress, grief, loss, whatever we're dealing with, they come back to me and they'll say, I didn't realize how angry I was. And I'm like, congratulations. Yay. You got in touch with your anger because anger is such a fester. It's such a normal human emotion and it gets worse and festers if we don't name it. Right. And then it makes us act out. It makes us think and feel in ways we don't want to. And it's, it's, it's normal. It also is a proxy for other feelings like fear and vulnerability, but simply naming it. I am angry. I am mad as a hornet. Right. And that's okay. We don't have to be this model of serenity and grace. We we can be mad as hell and that's okay too. Right. I think, you know, the, the title of my book, if we break Mm. came from, um, you know, my daughter, Maisie, all three of my daughters are just little Buddhas. But I went, I've met your daughters. Just, they are little Buddhas. <laughs> they are Buddhas. I mean, I've learned more from them than they may have learned from me. But, you know, I went through this period where I, after Hunter left, where I wanted to control as much as I could. 
I felt out of control. I felt untethered. This is an important part of the book for me. It fundamentally changed not only how I parented, but how I lived my life. I was reprimanding Finnegan because she was literally two, two minutes late. And my mantra was, we will not break. We will not break. You know, and this goes to like, I'm not going to show anger. I'm not going to, you know, mess up. We will not break. And I'm, you know, Finnegan's crying. I'm yelling at her in the kitchen. And Maisie comes down and said, what are you doing? Why are you making her cry again? And I said, Fin, Maisie, we will not break. And she said, mom, it's okay if we break a little. Oh my gosh, she and is a big I was like, oh, well, I mean, it was like this powerful, you know, um, wave hit me. I mean, literally like someone flipped on the lights and I told them to go up to my bedroom. I stepped outside and I was like, what? Of course. I mean, how basic. Of course it's okay. What am I trying to do to these poor children, to myself? She's exactly right. I mean, I think a lot of parents who are going through a struggle like you have want to shield their kids from the pain and shield them from the full understanding of what's happening when, when I think a lot of times, even when they're little, little, they know a lot more than we right. give them credit for. And so, and it sounds like you, you have been very honest with the girls about what's going on. We had a moment. I mean, that was the moment where I said, you know, I said, okay, I will be more understanding of you two. If you'll also realize I'm, I'm just trying to do my best. I'm just trying, you know, I'm just trying to raise you as well as I can. It was just, you know, poor Naomi was already out of the house. She was in college. I actually apologized to her in the book because that poor child didn't get, there was no bending. Um, but she turned out okay. So she you know. has, she has, <laughs> we, we all, we she do has, our best. she has, but, but again, I think it is natural to want to shield kids from, from pain that, that somehow feels not about them right. and to make sure that they know it's not about them. Right. But then they are having their own experience of what's happening in this family dynamic mm-hmm. and we can't protect them from their own feelings. I mean, we can't, they are. Right. Sep- One of the most important things we need to teach our kids is how to comfort themselves. That's it. In a healthy way. And I do, I, I have apologized to my girls for not allowing them to mourn and process what was happening when it was happening. Apologies are incredibly powerful. I work on it. I try to do a better job of apologizing with a period at the end. Right. I struggle with the period at the end. The period at the end is the hard one because I'm like, I am so sorry. Like, I'm pretty good at apologizing. I mean, you'd have to ask my husband, but, but I'm always like, I'm so sorry. I messed up. I want you to know it was only because, <laughs> right, right. right? but it's, it, and apologies are so powerful and so necessary in relationships. And that's huge that you did it in person and have written about it. Right. I mean, I apologize that night. It's okay if we break a little night and it really changed the way that I parented. I mean, the kids Love to say Maisie's had it the easiest because she was the youngest, and after that, oh, they was, always they all love to right. say that yes, you know, that but, they've had it the easiest or the hardest or right, yes, right. But um, one of the things I learned from the book, and it's not, it's actually not in the book, and um, I did the audio book, and so I'm practicing reading the book out loud, and for you know two and a half years, 
when I would read what I had written, it was with an editorial eye. It was, I don't like the way that sentence sounds. I think there needs to be more reflection. So I was just constantly reading it, trying to make it better. And as I was preparing to do the audiobook, I read it for the first time as a reader. And I cried. It broke my heart. There were parts where I thought, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for her. And so I read the book and realized that I needed to forgive myself mm. for not believing in myself. And that that makes me want to cry right now thinking about how just the image of you reading out loud your own words and and feeling <laughs> sorry. I mean, that makes me want to cry right now. Oh. It's so dear and it's so important and so meaningful. And I would imagine that writing the book as we talked about and then reading it out loud was itself oh. therapeutic. It was therapeutic and exhausting. Yes. I was so hard on myself. And when I divorced... I didn't know if I could stand on my own. A 48-year-old, college-educated, smart, with a strong group of friends, hardworking, I didn't think I could make it. Like, my God, that's so sad. That's so sad. And so I think men can get as much from the book as, as, as women. But, you know, I do hope that women realize, especially, again, men can too, but to believe in themselves. You know, to, to know that they can make it. It may not be easy. It may not necessarily look like my journey. But you can make it. But you have to believe in yourself. You have to love yourself, which is hard. It's so hard. I write in the book about Hunter had an addiction coach. And I tried to take control over his recovery, literally. You know, I would call the doctors at his recovery program and ask how he was doing. And did they test him? And was he sober today? And one of the gentlemen who was his addiction coach said, you know, I don't mean to offend you, but it's pretty arrogant to think that you're the only one who could help him. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, <laughs> you're wrong. I mean, I, I really did. I was like, well, nobody knows him better than me. Obviously, I'm the one that's going to help him. And what I wasn't doing was thinking about why I was doing and saying the things I was. I was not turning inward. I was not trying to better understand my feelings and my actions. I think that's a really important message for people who are listening about living with someone with addiction or loving someone who has an addiction. I think it's easy to assume that because you love someone, because you know someone, that you can be the catalyst for their change. When addiction, I mean, obviously there's a continuum of addiction, right? But when someone is so dug into their addiction, it's a medical illness. It's called substance use disorder It is a medical, psychological, behavioral, trauma-related phenomenon that that is much bigger than one person and certainly not something that even the person who loves you the most can can change. And so I think that person, I I admire that person for being as blunt as he was, for saying, I think he told it to me like two or three times. It's a little arrogant. You're kind of a jerk. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but but in a way, I mean, I'm appreciating now that you appreciate that because... That bluntness is almost what it takes to, to help people recognize, like, this is not about you. Right. It's about a really, really messy, complicated problem that is rooted in, in biology and genetics and behaviors and environment and past history that, that is just too big for you to solve. Right. And that is why 
in the addiction space, we don't just tell people, hey, quit drinking. Hey, stop smoking crack. Hey, you'd be better off if you quit right. smoking. Of course, that's our job as medical professionals and as, as spouses and people who love people with addiction. But it's much bigger than that. And to relinquish control over your thinking you can fix it is where actually change happens. And then you can look inward and, and protect yourself. Right. I think, too, for a long time, it was writing the book that let me know. And this, again, this was another thing that was really hard to acknowledge, that not only was I not helping Hunter, in many ways, I was making it worse. Yeah. And that was hard for me to grasp. I would not leave him alone. I mean, I just battered him with accusations and plans, wanting him to you know, behave and say and do certain things. And, you know, what? instead of stepping away and saying, you know, I want, I want you to get sober, I'm here for you if you need me, but you need to work this out on your own, I was just hammering him with yeah. emails and phone calls. And, and that's, you know, Al-Anon. I was just about to therapy, talk about Al-Anon, yeah. You know, I would have better served Hunter and my children by taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. It's hard, it's hard though, to find that line, right? And that's why we ultimately need people in our lives, like our friends, our, our therapists, our doctors, or whoever is in your world to help you kind of see from a bird's eye view what's happening. But the, the concept of enabling is real. I mean, enabling is where we accidentally, unintentionally help an addict continue to be addicted, where we in an attempt to control them or help them, we're actually sabotaging their potential recovery. That's really what Al-Anon is based on, is the concept that you can love and support someone, but that is distinct from being the person who can make them change. And it's really about protecting yourself while you're helping them help themselves. And that's the ticket. But it's, it's, it's not easy because it's such a fine line, right, between loving someone and supporting someone and then letting them free in an addicted space to solve their own problems. Right. Just loving someone. It's and enough. It's, yeah. Just loving the addict in your life mm-hmm. and maintaining your own health, mental, physical, is the best thing you can do. That was a lesson I actually did not learn until... It was over until my marriage had already ended. And I didn't. I didn't spend time in the Al-Anon space. I did see a therapist who tried desperately to help me. And all I wanted to do was talk to her about Hunter. Mm. And she kept saying, but what are you doing? And I remember thinking, well, I'm trying to help him. I couldn't hear it. And that was my journey. And I have to, again, forgive myself and and understand I was doing the best I could. You were doing the best you could. Yeah. I mean, you can't rewrite history, nor I think would you, because here you are. But what you what you're what I'm hearing you say is that you, you ultimately gave yourself permission to feel pain, to be honest with yourself about the pain and to forgive yourself for making missteps, which inevitably one does, and for processing your own complex feelings about what happened to you and what happened inside you, and you're still a work in progress and honest about that too. Right. We'll be taking a quick break, but stay tuned. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed, and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www 
www.kglobal.com slash podcast. And we're back. I hope people who read the book take away the importance of staying open to that growth. I mean, that when I look at my kids and I worry, like we all do, about, you know, if they're going to be okay, the thing that comforts me is that they're going to continue growing for the rest of their lives. Because I, I know that they have that same mindset of being open to change and to growth and learning. I'm a very different person today than I was, you know, five years ago, two years ago. Writing this book and really, like, acknowledging the mistakes I made, the missteps, and forgiving myself was huge. But it was hard. There were days when I was writing where I went to bed at 8. Yeah. I was like, that was, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I just uncovered something, and I need to go to bed. So it's, it's not an easy journey. It's work. It's emotional work, physical work. And if you can for a second, if you have time, you are going to get criticism. Yeah. Because you will, because this is 2022 and you are in a high profile position and you're being honest and you're talking about painful things and beautiful things all at once. How are you going to deal with that? Because it's kind of the kind of the world we live in. Right. Um, I'm going to try to just stay in my truth. There you go. That sounds kind of hokey, but, you know, it's hard. And there was definitely a period where someone turned to me, one of my girlfriends, and was like, stop Googling your husband. You know, I was like, oh, shit, busted. Busted. You know, because it was like I could reading every last thing. And so it's. It'll be an exercise. It will be an not exercise. Not to, you know, read the comment section, um, but I'm going to try really, really hard. Yeah, it requires a, an internal filter. It may require an external filter of right. people. Because I'll try. even if you... which Stay away from the haters. Yeah, haters are going to hate. I don't know who came up with that, but it, it's just true. And you're going to get blowback, even if you came across as the the Pope and Mother Teresa tied in a bow, right? It, right. it doesn't It doesn't matter, and that's not yeah. what you're even trying to do. You're not trying to come off as, as like a Pollyanna. It's just, but the criticism, I would imagine, could be itself traumatizing, given that you are being so honest. In other right. words, if, if you were writing a, an obnoxious book and getting criticism, you'd be like, well, all right, that makes yeah. sense. But And, you know, I mean, honestly, I can tell you how I'm going to handle it, but I don't know. I've never, I've never been in this space before. You know, I've kept my life as private as I could. So it's scary. I mean, I, I guess to be honest, it's 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 scary. I'm excited for my book to come out, but I'm equally, if not more, scared. Yeah. So, you know, I'll do my best. I guess um, you have to also think, and I think this to myself, you know, what's the worst that would happen? You know, right, your, keep, kid, your kids still love you. Yeah. You know who you are. Right. You have a deep well of self-awareness, empathy. You're honest. And at the end of the day... That's what you need to right. be a healthy, happy human. And so... And there's so many things that I was scared of when I ran a triathlon, when I had to, you know, speak in front of 600 people for a, a fundraiser. There were many times where it's like, well, they can't arrest me if I don't finish the race. You know, I, yeah, I can't... Like, if the book flops, it flops. I can't get arrested for it. They're not going to arrest right. me for writing a, you know... 
a book that nobody wants to read. So I just have to, you know, comfort myself that way. That's right. <laughs> I won't get arrested. Right. And it's also about the process. Like you, I mean, not to put words in your mouth, but you, you have you've grown so much through the process. No one can touch that. No criticism. No, no one on Twitter can touch that. Right. And luckily, I'm not really on social media. Well, that is a... Someone said something a, about like, you know, something tweeted. What do they call it? Um, trending or I don't know. Oh my God, I love I was like, I don't even know what that means. Good. Keep so, it. Kathleen, I won't hear my it. little nugget of mental health advice from me <laughs> as we have talked, in addition to what we've talked about over the years, is stay off social media. Right. I'm just going to stick to my well. wordle, my wordle and my spelling bee. There you go. That is my salve. So. All right. So you're, you're, you're great. And I'm just so grateful Kathleen, for what you've put out into the world and what you're talking about today. And I, I always wrap with one question. If you were to give one piece of mental health advice to someone who's struggling right now, young, old, going through a hard time with a relationship with another one or, 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 or a relationship with themselves, what would the sort of negative advice be to that person? I can only give them one. You can give <laughs> two. You can give two. I mean, I, I, I think being honest, I just can't say enough the importance of just really being honest with yourself and forgiving you know those two pieces I, I I'd say um have saved have saved me and I'll continue to use them that's great I think you're healthier from the inside out because of the work you have done and the work you continue to do and it's fun to know you <laughs> inspiring to know you and also fun to be part of this path you've taken because you show other people, including myself, that change is possible. Change is good. Change is good. <laughs> Kathleen, thank you so much for, for joining me today. It's been such a treat to have you on the show. Thank you, Lucy. This is so fun. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my multi-talented brother, Walter Martin. On the way out, please enjoy his song, Hey Sister. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well. I'd like to let my little sister share the microphone with me for a second. She's going to help me sing a song called Hey Sister. Hey Sister. Yeah? Something in the way you love looks just like me. Something in the way you talk sounds just like Aunt Marie. Yeah, I could see that. And Grandma looks just like Papa. That's true, isn't it? Mama looks just like Cousin Bob. We should put them all together and call it a family.